Welcome to another edition of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and today I am joined by Grant. Grant, welcome. It's so wonderful to be here. It's great to have you back again, and today we're going to do a Verdi opera. Oh, I love Verdi. Doesn't everyone? This is one of Verdi's earliest operas, Nabucco. And one of the earliest stories that we've covered in Opera for Everyone. Oh, that's true, isn't it? At least in setting. As Verdi said it, and his librettist, Temistocle Solera. And when you tell us it's one of the oldest stories, how old is it and where does it come from? Uh, about 2,500 years mm-hmm. in round numbers, uh, <laughs> as, as one really should do when talking about numbers like 2,500 years. Yes. It comes from the Hebrew Bible, generously interpreted by way of a play, and then further by way of a ballet, and it makes it to us in this opera. It was actually quite a popular play, a French play, first produced in 1836 by Auguste Anissé Bourgeois and François Cornu. And because of its popularity, it was picked up and made into a ballet, which was produced actually by La Scala, which is where this opera first premieres, Nabucco, in 1842. So it's not all that many years later. And La Scala, for those of us who aren't up on our specific European opera houses, is located in Milan, correct? That is correct. I wonder if that'll be important later. We'll have to see. Well, Verdi was not the towering composer dominating the Italian opera scene when this was produced. No, he wasn't? No, in fact, he had previously sworn off of of composing and operas because his prior opera. This is his third opera to be produced. And his first one went really well and he got a contract for three more at La Scala, by the way. He he knew how to make connections with people and he had the support. The singers always loved him. But his second play was a comedy that had had not been successful. In fact, it had been viciously booed down by the La Scala audience in Milan and he swore off of ever composing again. But you also said that he was early in his career, and I know this guy did more than three operas. Well, so obviously, well, he did this one, didn't he? <laughs> so, <laughs> three times the charm, as they say. turned around. I mean, I should give a little background to his life at this point. He's in his late 20s, and in the space of three years, Verdi would later conflate it and say it was in the space of just a handful of months, but in the space of three years, his infant daughter had died, his young son had died, all of his children, And then his wife died. Mm. So his entire family had perished, all for different reasons. His wife, it was encephalitis, and young children had a difficult time surviving to adulthood in any case at that that time. So you can imagine finishing up a comic opera was was a bit of a challenge. So how did he come to write this one? (laughs) Well, that's actually an interesting story, and there are a couple of versions of it. Verdi's own version of it has to do with that tune that we heard right in the beginning of the show before we even spoke. Va pensiero. As Verdi told the story in his memoirs many decades later, I'll try to keep it short, but he explained that he was just pulled up in his home by himself with the death of his other family members, bereft of his career doing well. He suffered the indignity. I mean, the, the composer sat in view of the audience in the orchestra area, and so he had to really withstand this barrage in a very personal, direct way. But the impresario of Milan, Mirelli, who had given him that, that additional two to three opera contract, 
Following the success of his first opera, Oberto, Verdi tells how this impresario found him and shoved this libretto in his hand and says, you, you must do this. And he didn't want to, and he he couldn't even give it back because he had disappeared. So he takes it home and he throws it on the bed and it flies open to the pages where it has the words to that tune that we were just listening to. The tune, of course, is Verdi's. The words were from the librettist. And it's a piece of what Solera himself adds to this story, not in the play, not in the ballet, where the captive Hebrew slaves are singing fondly of their homeland and their wish to be free. And Verdi really wanted to stick stick to his guns and not go back to composing because he was so saddened by it, as he tells the story many decades later when he's an enormously, unprecedentedly successful composer. But this concept wouldn't leave his mind. He had to do something with these words that were written. And he, he writes this tune, which is, in fact, to this day, the most well-known tune from this opera. And it's a tune that becomes very important in Italian history itself, which we'll get to, I think, when we talk about the, the song in the context of the opera. I love Italian history. In particular, why is that? It's a story of extremes. Hmm. You have the Roman Empire as this world-spanning dominion, and it is shattered down, particularly in the West, into these very small states that become experimental grounds for different forms of government Mm -hmm. and different forms of commerce and banking and art and literature. That's right. They're not all monarchies, are they? And then the age of nationalism comes. 19th century. And they want to unite into one place. And there is a very live question of Mm. which of these forms of government or what hybrid of these forms of government Mm -hmm. the entire nation is going to have if it ever succeeds in becoming a nation at all. Yeah. And this is a very live issue during the span of Verdi's life. He is born when France controls the province of Parma, where he's born. So he's technically born as a French citizen. I mean, that doesn't make any sense in one's brain, and that doesn't carry on for very long because Napoleon is defeated in 1815. Verdi's born in 1813. But it's kind of crazy when you think about it. And once the French are gone, it's not as though the Italians get to rule themselves. No, it's the French and the Austrians batting Italy back and forth like a tennis ball and using it to work out a lot of their grievances with one another. Not easy for the people living there themselves. Hardly. All right. So we will return to Vapensiero, but that does not appear until the third part of this four-part opera. So stick around, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, it's a good one. It's actually... There's so much good music. Grant, you and I know that because we kept needing more and more time to read up on this opera, there's such a wealth of information historically behind Verdi and behind this opera. And it was even very interesting for us to watch a variety of productions. And we can mention those as, as we carry on as well. It's an easy one to get lost in. It's a powerful opera. It's a very powerful opera. And speaking of it being powerful, let's look at how this opera opens. It opens with a large choral piece, lots and lots of singers on the stage in the chorus. Who are these people? They're the Trojans, and the uh, the Achaean army 
is uh, has just retreated, and it looks like everything's going to be fine. And... I think you're looking at the wrong notes. Oh, oh, right, right. That's a different, <laughs> but very similar story. No, we find ourselves in the city of Jerusalem in mm-hmm. the year 587 BC, and the Babylonian army, the Neo-Babylonian army is what we as historians might call it, but they certainly just thought of themselves as the Babylonians, mm. is besieging the city. And there are a number of the Hebrews, the people who will come to be known as Jews, who are gathered in this temple, and they're not sure what the future is going to bring.
You're listening to Opera for Everyone, and that was the opening choral number from Nabucco by Giuseppe Verdi. Grant, powerful music. Yeah, they uh, they seem pretty worked up. Yeah. They're perhaps even more cheerful than the situation might call for. It's a pretty dire straits that they find themselves in. Yeah. They are surrounded. They are outnumbered. They are outgunned. Their city is on the brink of being taken. Yeah, it's a plea, a lamentation, and and a lot of them seem to be coming to grips with defeat. Yeah. Yeah, and the power of this chorus, we've mentioned earlier that that, that choral piece, Va Pansiero, that'll show up in part three, was Verdi's way of describing what pulled him back into composing and shot him off onto the trajectory that we know for Verdi as the great prolific opera composer. But I'd just like to mention that unlike so many of the operas that Verdi composed during his lifetime, where there was a lot of back and forth and a lot of his input into the libretto, this libretto, as I mentioned, Verdi said was stuffed into his pocket. And maybe Verdi's story is not perfectly historically accurate, but the fact that the libretto was already written is in fact true because it had been written for a different composer Hmm. to produce a piece at La Scala. And so, yes, of course, there were some changes made, but mostly this libretto had already been written by Solera, who was a, a successful librettist who worked in Italy and, in fact, later moves on to Spain. He's an interesting character. But, but there will be a place that we talk about later on where Verdi does insist upon a change. And it's a change that supports what we're talking about already and the importance of these choral pieces. The chorus in this opera, I would say, is more important and choruses in many operas. They are a real character, the people. Hmm. Reminds me of William Tell. Well, that's that's not actually an accident. In fact, it's also a nationalistic feeling in that opera. There, there's a lot of political drama and personal drama maybe isn't the main focus of that opera. And you could argue the same with this one, I think. Yeah. Anyway, Verdi knew his Rossini and admired Rossini very much, as most composers did. And so for our choral lamentation, with so many of them feeling the situation is hopeless, surely there must be some hope. Well, there enters an interesting character. Mm. I'm going to call him Zachariah, because that is the usual English language rendering of his name. We, we do that often here, yes. <laughs> if, you, if you would like, you can hazard the Italian pronunciation, but I'm not going to dare. <laughs> I will hazard. I need to see it, though. Zachariah. Sure, probably. And he comes in. He is not the biblical prophet Zechariah. He's of a different time period and inclination. And yet he certainly has the overtones of a biblical prophet, sometimes compared to Jeremiah, although in message he is extremely different from Jeremiah. But Zechariah comes in and tries to rouse the people and give them hope through their faith. Ironically, Jeremiah historically and in the Bible counseled submission to the Babylonians, acknowledging that their military power was far beyond that available to Judah. Well, that's sure not what's happening here. And there's a there's a lovely piece where he interacts with the chorus. Yes, he interacts as a prophet and priest, giving them inspiration. In one iteration we saw of it, he was dressed as sort of this rabble-rousing ideologue of a politician going around and 
whipping up crowds in nationalistic frenzy and trying to convince them that with God's help and with their faith, they can still overcome the evil empire. Oh, wow. Zechariah is one powerful base, and he seems to have rallied his people. Yeah, I think it's going to all work out great for him. Good. But there's a whole opera here in I, front of us. <laughs> I know. It's, it, it, it may or may not have a happy ending, but uh, are there no spoilers in opera? It's got a happy ending, sort of, question mark. Um, it's got a mostly happy ending. I'd say it has a happy ending. It has a happy ending for most of them. Most of them it works out great for. For us as an audience, I believe oh. it has a happy ending. Oh, yes, absolutely. We're, we're, the guys we're rooting for do just fine. Okay. <laughs> and Zechariah is up there trying to give everybody hope. He makes a number of biblical allusions mm. in the course of talking. He invokes the example of the judge Gideon. He invokes the example of Moses and the Egyptians, mm. of times when God gave deliverance through unlikely means. In the case of Gideon, something resembling psychological warfare in the case of Moses, the parting of the Red Sea. He's not exactly saying that's what's going to happen. He's saying God has some sort of a plan here and that they only need to call on divine favor. Now, it does eventually work out that way, but not immediately. Right. However, Zechariah's got good reason to think that things are going to work out well in the short term because he has a valuable hostage. Yes, he has the daughter of the king of the Assyrians, are we calling them, or the Babylonians? He is calling them the Assyrians. And I think that's probably the moment where we need to just comment on the way historicity works here. You don't get your history from opera. We could just start there. It's probably (laughs) not great to get your history from where operas are saying they're set. You Mm. can often learn a lot of history about... When they're written. Yes. Mm. And so in this play, the terms Assyrian and Babylonian are used not quite interchangeably. The term Babylonian seems to refer mostly to the city itself of Babylon and Assyria to the nation. In reality, Assyria was a 
separate nation from Babylon. Babylon based out of the city of Babylon, Syria based primarily out of the city of Nineveh. And some of the actions attributed to the Assyrian Babylonian king in this are actually the actions of a later Persian king. So we've got three, maybe four kings, depending on how you count it, getting smushed into this one character for the sake of telling the complete arc of the Hebrew story of the exile in a tight two and a half hour long opera. Yeah. Yeah. We've put a little bit of history in the blender, but there's an emotional truth that is being told. Yes. Well, this princess who has been captured, Benena, is the daughter of the king, the title character, Nebuco or Nebuchadnezzar. I could also mention that in its earliest years, this opera was known by a longer title that I'm a little frightened to hazard a guess at the Italian, but something along the lines of Nabucodonosor. <laughs> that is not very good, but but it got shortened to Nabucco, thank goodness, just a couple of years in. And the wonderful thing with any words that came out of ancient languages is no one can get too much on you for mispronouncing them because literally no one knows how to say it right. We don't. That's good. But we do have an agreed interpretation in English to say Nebuchadnezzar for this man. And we're calling him Nabucco, as other characters in the opera also call him Yeah, Nabucco. although for you history buffs out there, this Nebuchadnezzar is also Sennacherib, Nabonidus, and Cyrus at different turns. Very good. We'll just glide on past that. And here is the daughter of the great king on stage amongst all these people who are lamenting their impending defeat. So had they captured the princess? This seems like a big get. <laughs> Felt like the war wasn't going great for them. Well, of course, in an Italian opera, even if it's not the main point of the opera, there is going to be a spectacular love story. And in this case, one that is extremely important for the first, you know, eight to ten minutes of the opera. That's true. It's and true. swiftly be, forgotten. Well, there's a little bit of back motivation understanding that goes on with another character. But Ishmael one of the Hebrews. It's almost very feminist, really. It's these two women fighting over a man, and the man is completely unimportant for the rest of the story after this initial <laughs> opening scene, and mostly just serves as this like motivation for the women. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? Well, he had been sent, Ishmael had been sent, backstory, he had been sent to Babylon as an ambassador and was imprisoned. Like That's a one way to treat an ambassador, but he doesn't I mean, stay there. In the ancient world, if you were the ambassador and you went to war and you didn't get your head cut off. You did pretty well. That was actually a pretty common way to declare war, as it were, back in the day. Yikes. Yikes. Well, he is rescued from his prison cell by this very same Fenena. And spirited away to his people who promptly take her prisoner. So that worked out well. That worked out well. <laughs> and now we have Fenena's lover, our former ambassador rushing onto the stage to deliver some very important news to the assembled crowd. The king's army approaches. That's reason for panic. But before he can direct any more attention to that issue, he sees his true love, Banana, and she's a captive. And they sing this strange little piece back and forth about how he wishes to return the favor of her rescuing him from prison, and she's worried that he's going to violate his sacred duty 
Yeah, it's interesting. She's very concerned about his personal honor to his homeland. She doesn't want him to betray his people. And she says this very interesting thing. On the day of vengeance, whoever spoke of love. And that's the first indication in this play, which we're going to see quite a lot of, Mm. of the opposition between hatred and love. Now, I know that's not the most original, (laughs) most original possible opposition, but it serves the purposes of the play well. The choice between hatred and love, particularly as motivating factors. Right. Well, speaking of hatred, very soon after this, in walks Fenena's sister, the other daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, Abigail, as I believe it said in Italian, or Abigail. And Abigail comes in, and Abigail is pretty much always in a bad mood. She is a strong woman who really does not like her sister, really does not like any situation she's in. But the first thing she lets us know about her is how she's angry at her sister because her sister is in love with the man whom she loves. Yes. She's quite upset about this. She's not taking it well. (laughs) And she taunts her sister. Do you know only the arms of love? Because here she is and she has come in to the temple with disguised soldiers Mm -hmm. accompanying her, ready to take it by surprise. Yeah, and there's an interesting contrast to be drawn between the Abigail character of this opera and the Abigail from the play, which was the source for the ballet, which was the source for the opera, in that Abigail begins very boldly and very strongly in a heroic fashion. She disguises herself as a Hebrew in order to rescue her sister from the Israelites, which is very different from what we're seeing here, where she comes in in a warlike fashion as a woman scorned. The love triangle, that's an invention of our librettist. Hmm. Didn't exist in the other. So it's it's a way to compress things. You always have to simplify and compress from a play to an opera or, or a play to a ballet. But it's it's very interesting because the character is quite different. In the play, she becomes a vengeful, spiteful woman as she is in the opera all along. But it's an intriguing difference. Yes, and she comes in a full-throated villain. She gives a classic villain speech, in this case, borrowing some language. Much of the libretto text borrows language, as we are familiar with religious operas, from the scriptures themselves. Mm -hmm. And her taunt, what God shall save you now, Mm. that is a taunt borrowed from Nebuchadnezzar, as reported in (laughs) the book of Daniel, in the famous story of the fiery furnace where he tells Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that he's going to cast them into the furnace of flaming fire, which sounds much better than the usual English translation of fiery furnace. He's going to (laughs) cast them in, and what god will be able to rescue you from my hand? Which is a rhetorical question in his case, but of course it's a question that ends up being answered in the story. Yes, in that story and in this opera, both. And... It's one of my favorite comebacks in the Bible is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replying to him saying, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, our God may deliver us. But even if God doesn't know this, we will never serve you, which is just a wonderful kick at them. And 
it's exactly what we get from Ishmael in a moment here that he says, I will give my life up to you, but my heart I cannot surrender. He's willing to go into the metaphorical furnace, but not to betray who he is. Right, because Abigail has taunted him when he's embracing Fenena to comfort her in this moment. Oh, these are the arms of love? She's belittling his manhood by saying you're not a proper man because you're succumbing to these amorous feelings rather than being warlike. And Abigail comes back at him saying, I loved you. That love is now a fury. The woman scorned, huh? Yeah, and taking it to the next level. I mean, usually they don't come with soldiers in tow. Right. (laughs) Fenena in this moment joins in the prayers of the Hebrew people and in her own way in this moment converts to becoming one of them. Yes. She prays for deliverance and it's a touching moment and the first of three moments of conversion on which this story hinges. listening to Verdi's Nabucco on Opera for Everyone. Well, we've just heard from Fenena and the man whom she saved earlier, Ishmael, along with her angry sister, Abigail. Fenena has prayed that Ishmael's people will be protected, but in short order, the people cry out that their foe, King Nebuchadnezzar, Nabucco, is entering the temple to defeat them. Zechariah tries to hold back the king from defiling the temple with his presence, but his forces are too great and the king enters on 
horseback. <laughs> Zakaria grabs King Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, Fenena, and threatens to stab her in a futile attempt to stop the king and his warriors. Yeah. <laughs> the king goes right on, and he makes his presence known, entering the temple. Like King Nebuchadnezzar, he knows how to make an impression and how to make an entrance. A lot of being king is about ceremony. As long as everyone respects the ceremony. And it's hard not to respect the ceremony when it comes backed up by thousands of soldiers. That does give you a certain authority. And yet, Zechariah isn't going for it. No, he doesn't really go with popular opinion at all. He knows what he's about. Yeah, he's a... He's got a he's got a, a a moral compass. It's a confusing one in this moment because he's holding this poor girl hostage about to stab her in the chest. He has the greater picture in mind, I believe. But yes, it is confusing. And not everyone we will soon see does have the greater picture in mind. <laughs> well, does he stab Fanana? No, he is prevented, of course, by Fanana's lover, Ismail. Yes. And this makes the Hebrews quite upset at uh, Ismail. That's putting it mildly. And Nebuchadnezzar's just upset at everyone because that's where he's at right now. Well, he's in war. Of course he's going to be upset. Abigail's having a good time. She's all Viva Nabucco. We might loop back to that later. Yes, we might. <laughs> so the invading army has come in. And just as the people were fearing in the beginning, they are captured. And... There is a cosmic dimension to this as well, that Nabucco says that he has done battle with them. He has issued a challenge to their god, their god whom they call on, and their god has not prevented him. And so he considers himself to have vanquished even their god. What is this talk of god, he says mockingly. He does, but the story's not over. This part ends with one of those scenes where pretty much everyone is expressing their opinions simultaneously. In loud song, which isn't really a great way to get your opinion across. It's much more a operatic convention, but it sounds beautiful.
is Opera for Everyone, and we have just finished part one of the four-part Nabucco, an opera by Giuseppe Verdi. This first part is the only part that takes place in Jerusalem because Nebuchadnezzar has vanquished the Hebrews, and he will not let them stay in Jerusalem. Grant, can you shed some light on this? The story is conflating or taking inspiration from a number of different biblical stories. And one of the odd effects of that is that the Babylonian king has just condemned them all to death, but also next scene we see them taken into exile because we have this combination of the Esther story where the planned execution of the Jews is what is at stake. The Esther story. Can you remind us of the highlights of that one? Uh, without getting too much into the details, a evil advisor who has it out for the Jews uh, gets the kind of clueless king to sign off on the killing of all the Jews and nearly carries this through, except that it turns out that one of his queens, uh, in fact, his high queen, Esther. is Esther, who uh, is secretly Hadassah, a Jew. Um, Hadassah is her actual Jewish name. Esther is her uh, Babylonian name. And is that story before or after the one in our opera? The t- story takes place chronologically after this one, uh, but it's being compressed in so that it's part of the exile story. We don't have the character of Esther. We don't have any of the characters of the Esther story, in fact. But we have that question of these plotting advisors who have it out for the Jews mm. going after them layered on top of a story where the Jews are being taken into exile right. by the Babylonians. So there's an ambiguity in the opera about are the Jews being exiled? Are they being executed? Does the entire span of this take place and how long it takes them to decide on exactly what they're going to do with a death sentence? And it kind of doesn't matter because what this story is trying to do is tell the scope of this experience of the Jews being uprooted from their homeland, made vulnerable to the whims of foreign despots. And that is a thing that is certainly resonant in the Bible through later Jewish history and in the contemporary political context to which Verity was writing. Yes, the historical context with Verity and the impulse towards nationalism, as they said, Viva Verdi, V-E-R-D-I, Viva Vittorio Emanuele Re d'Italia, linking Verdi in the popular imagination of uniting the Italians under this king, Vittorio Emanuele. Well, in this opera, yes, there's a love triangle, a love story element, because we like that in our operas. But this is a story very much about the people, the experience of the Hebrew people. Yes, uh, I believe there's a, a quote from one of the books that I was uh, looking at for this that said, in, in almost no other Italian opera is the love interest so perfunctory. Yeah. It exists, but almost as background chatter. Yeah. And Verdi, and obviously also his librettist, had certain political leanings. And now we move on to part two of this four-part opera. By the way, they called them parts, not acts, so I'm trying to respect that, although you will see it expressed in different ways, different places, different productions. I'm not 
being particularly precise about such language. As you'll notice, I call operas plays on the reg, and I'm sure that there is someone who <laughs> bangs their head against the radio every time I do that. And I do apologize to that person. <laughs> We're about the story here. The story. And I really do appreciate your help. Well, we're moving into part two now. And as we said, we are no longer in Jerusalem. We are in Babylon. In fact, we don't have that big scene with the chorus to begin this part as we did in part one. It's a smaller scene. And we're with Abigail alone. And she has found something very interesting. It's a document that has critical information. Yes, a document that reveals that she is not the true daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, but is rather a daughter born of slaves. Because she's been raised like a sister with Fenena, assuming she has the same parents, but no. And there is here an echo, again, of biblical stories. The two grand narratives in the Hebrew Bible, what Christians call the Old Testament, are the story of the Exodus, where Moses takes the people out of slavery in Egypt to freedom, the Ten Commandments, and eventually deliverance into their own land. In the story of the exile, the people begin in their own land, are conquered by foreign kings, are brought out of their own land, and eventually are able to return through a series of almost miraculous events. And this opera is primarily focused on the exile story. In fact, it tries to tell the whole exile story as though the entire thing happened in a matter of weeks. Right. So this story is primarily focused on the exile. But here we have a shout out, maybe even an inversion of the story of the Exodus. And again, the story of the Exodus is in a way an inversion to begin with of the story of the exiles, the people coming into the land, going out of the land. The Moses story. But in the Moses story, Moses himself is the child of Hebrew slaves, and he is brought up in the palace of the king because of the pity taken on him by the Egyptian princess. And uh, there's a lot of extra biblical commentary imagining what that must have been like to be raised in the palace of the king and that the pharaoh he comes back to and ultimately liberates the people from was someone who was at some point like a brother to him. Yeah. And here we have an inversion of that. With Abigail. Our juxtaposition between love and hatred, tyranny and freedom, we have Abigail, who is a daughter of slaves, and instead of using her elevated position as a princess, in Babylonian terms, actually a queen, all high-ranking noble women were called queens. She uses this position not to elevate others or to liberate others, but rather to pursue her vendetta and to seek vengeance and indeed to seek her own elevation at the expense of others. Because in a way, she's horrified to learn that's what this scene here with Abigail is about. She's horrified to learn that this is the truth that there is this document proving it. And she doesn't want to give up. She's the elder sister after all. And Benena has always seemed to have been slightly favored and it's eaten away at her. And she starts off this scene in a rage. She has found this document and she is going to make sure that 
her possession of this documentary evidence she can use to her own benefit to secure her power, to pursue her own ends, as you say, in her own self-interest. And because this opera moves at a crazy fast pace, yes, <laughs> she doesn't have to wait very long. That's true. And her behavior in this opera is an interesting contrast to the original play, which was the source of the ballet and then this opera. In the play, Abigail starts out as quite a sympathetic character, very sisterly, genuinely so. In fact, she's the one who comes to rescue her sister, who is kept captive by the Hebrews. She disguises herself and goes in to rescue her sister Fenena. It isn't until later, when Nebuchadnezzar needs to appoint a regent and he appoints Fenena, that Abigail's personality changes. In the opera, Abigail is always a vengeful, power hungry woman. The way Verdi writes this piece, Abigail, she's a soprano required to leap octaves in a single moment, practically. It's a demanding, difficult role to sing because you have to be soft and lyrical, but you also have to be a powerful, dramatic soprano. In fact, the originator of this role of Abigail, Giuseppina Stroponi, a woman who later becomes Verdi's wife, some accused Verdi of hastening the ruining of her voice hmm. by playing this role. Oh, well. It's not easy. This is a difficult, difficult role for a soprano, but it is a fascinating character. So, in this beginning scene of the second part, we see different aspects of Abigail. First, when she finds out about this document, she's in a rage, but then she reflects on her love for Ishmael. Abigail, as part of this love triangle where two women, sisters, both love the same man. And it's interesting because the man in the story who is significant in the first act and has an appearance later on and is otherwise not terribly important to the story primarily exists to drive these two female characters' motivation, a sort of inverse of what we might call the Bechtel conundrum, where women show up in stories only to provide motivation for the leading men. Right. And he's providing the motivation for these two women. Because this is ultimately a story primarily about the relationship of these two daughters and their father. And how that plays out in the history of the Hebrews. Yes, it turns out that family dramas very quickly become national dramas when those people have <laughs> armies and kingdoms at their disposal. That's true, that's true. Well, let's hear a little bit of Abigail in her powerful, vengeful mode. Then she'll transition to a softer reminder of the love that she had felt. If only, if only he had requited her love. <laughs> Mirar. 
Well, that was Abigail, daughter of King Nebuchadnezzar in Nabucco by Giuseppe Verdi, but she has just learned she's not his natural daughter, but rather adopted daughter. And we've heard how angry and vengeful she's feeling, but also how she's remembering that there is this man, this Hebrew man that she fell in love with, but he didn't love her back, if only. And so now it's time for vengeance. And by now, I mean right now. There's no waiting at any point in this opera for anything. <laughs> right on cue. Immediately, the high priest of Baal comes in. Baal, by the way, is a sort of inaccurate, anachronistic term for the deity they would have been worshipping. Mm. The deity in question would have probably been Marduk, the patron god of Babylon, often referred to as Bel in their language. It is a related language to Hebrew. Bel and Baal have more or less the same meaning. Baal, by the way, sometimes pronounced Baal. That's the Aramaic pronunciation. Oh, interesting. But in any event, it is very close to the same word. We can think of this as the priest of Marduk. He is the priest of Baal in the story. And in any event, his job is to be a custodian of Babylon and its ancient traditions and it as the city that rules the universe. Well, like in many cultures, the high priest is not simply a religious function. He is deeply interwoven into the political structure. Yes. The king and high priest work together to administer in a culture such as this, where the king is primarily a military leader and has certain civic functions like construction and a lot of societal mm. functions are taken over by the high priest. Well, the high priest comes in because he has something he wants to say to Abigail. Yeah, which is that uh, he's kind of he's done with this whole Nebuchadnezzar thing. He thinks that there could be better governance, and he's particularly concerned that Benena, who has been set over the captured Hebrews, is going to set them free, and he wants nothing to do with this. Right, he even calls her wicked for that impulse. Yes, and instead he says, you know, who isn't wicked, you know, who would destroy them. <laughs> oh, flatter me. <laughs> and so he not only tries to sell her on a coup, he's already started one. Right. Power awaits you. All is prepared. We have already spread the rumor about that the king has fallen in battle and the people, with my urging, call for you to be their queen. Yeah, the people, by the way, in Pretty much any ancient text usually refer to the class of aristocracy uh, right. who had been very invested in this sort of power structure. And so the high priest of Baal has taken the lead in this coup, spread this rumor of the king's death, which is a thing, by the way, that happened in the ancient world, yeah. both intentionally and sometimes accidentally when there was just a rumor of a king's death that would set off rebellions or attempted coups. Power or... struggles. Yeah. And this feeds right into the thoughts that Abigail had been having previously about being angry and wanting her position to be firmly established. Meanwhile, elsewhere in the next scene, we have Zachariah coming in with his followers, and they are carrying the tablets of the law, that all-important element of their faith. And when Ishmael shows up, they are not happy to see him. He's one of them, but they are rejecting him. Yes, Zakaria's followers are still quite upset with Ishmael about the whole refusing to let them kill the hostage and Benena. giving away the city and the temple to the Babylonians. They blame him for their captivity in Babylon. Which is not precisely fair. It doesn't seem like that hostage was going to actually stall them for all that long, but he was on the 
wrong side in the wrong moment. And for that, they declare him accursed and they hate him for it. And he tries to reason against their hatred with love. He says, for the love of the living God, be done with your cursing. And that doesn't really move them. Yes, he begs for their mercy. And this whole group massed against him of his own people, he calls them brothers. And he says, I implore your mercy. And they're not ready to give mercy. And this whole group, this whole assembled group of captives say, the damned have no brothers. And it's interesting because this piece, we'll play just a little clip to finish out the half here. This piece, these words are given to this, this choral group here in the opera. In the original play, these were words said by Zakaria himself because Zakaria is Ishmael's brother, and he declares him to be anathema. Il Madetto. Listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. It airs Sundays from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in beautiful Jackson, Wyoming. Please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast. Make sure to smash that like button and rate, comment, and subscribe. Please stay with us. The second half of today's show is coming right up. Welcome back to the second half of Opera for Everyone. Today's opera is Nabucco by Giuseppe Verdi. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I'm joined today by Grant. Grant, thank you so much for your help with this opera. Oh, of course. It's wonderful to have you here to help out with a lot of this information. Before we go any further, I'd like to take a moment and thank all the musicians and artists involved in creating this CD that we're listening to today. This is a recording that was made in 1986 featuring the Philharmonia Orchestra conducted by Riccardo Muti. It also features the Ambrosian Opera Chorus, led by John McCarthy. The role of Nabucco is sung by Matteo Managuera, Ismaele by Veriano Lucchetti, Zaccaria is Nikolai Girov, Abigail sung by Renata Scotto, Venena is sung by Elena Obrazova, and the High Priest of Baal is sung by Robert Lloyd. Thank you one and all for this beautiful music that we've been listening to today. And now, Grant, may I ask you, in one big, beautiful recount, to do the Opera Helmet quiz and tell us what's gone on in the story thus far. So we open on the temple in Jerusalem, besieged by the approaching Babylonians or possibly Assyrians or occasionally Persians. But, you know, they're just foreign invaders. Yeah, they're they're besieged. It's not going well. and. In the besieged temple, we find the former ambassador, Ishmael, and 
his lover, the Babylonian princess Venena. Mm. His people are holding her hostage, even though she saved him from captivity. It's kind of a confusing moment, and it gets only more confusing when a woman who also fell in love with him, his current lover's sister... (laughs) Oh, that's ugly. (laughs) You you might need a chart to keep track of it all. Or not. (laughs) ...comes in, and she's super upset about the whole thing, and is acting like she's going to go mess everybody up, and then in comes... The king of Babylon, his sword red with blood. (laughs) And the people led by their their prophet, cum priest, cum political leader, Zechariah, are about to kill off their hostage, but she is rescued by her lover. And as a result, the people are sold off into slavery, possible execution coming up. And that ends all of the action that takes place in Jerusalem in part one. And then we fast forward to the city of Babylon, where Fenena, who's been put in charge of the Hebrew captives, is about to set them free, upsetting the high priests of Baal who want the Hebrews destroyed. Mm. And the result of this is that they support a coup against King Nebuchadnezzar led by his own daughter, Abigail. Ironically, she's just discovered she's not actually his daughter and is not invested in the status quo whatsoever. But she likes that part about being queen. Well, and who wouldn't? And she has a document to prove that she's not his daughter, but she's the one who holds the document and therefore the one who holds the power. And so a coup is in the offing started by a rumor being spread that the king has been killed. Hmm. And the last thing we heard was Zechariah, the prophet, the leader of the people, not, by the way, exactly the biblical Zechariah. He's kind of just, well, as many of these characters are, he's a smushing together of many different biblical figures. Compilation. <laughs> yeah, like primarily Jeremiah seems to be the influence, but he's also mm-hmm. in many cases saying things that are opposite to what Jeremiah said, although he occasionally quotes Jeremiah directly. So you do you. Well, it's Jeremiah is a fundamental source for this story. Yes, and each of the acts actually has a, or sorry, parts, has a quote, most of them from Jeremiah, that comes from the biblical text and introduces the theme of that part. Mm. So Zechariah comes in with the tablets of the law, and the next thing they know, they encounter Ishmael. And Ishmael, remember, is the one who delivered the whole city into... Well, they think. He's the one that the women fall in love with. Yeah, he seems to be a lot of trouble, really, for everyone he encounters. <laughs> um, he is kind of the um, the homme fatal of this story. <laughs> he is. Well, you know, I have a feeling things are going to work out for him. You know, I mean, it's an upright. <laughs> and so Ishmael comes in. And he is rejected by his people for turning traitor to the Babylonians by preventing them killing the hostage. And they reject him and curse him. Right. That's where we ended part one. But I think there's forgiveness on the horizon for Ishmael. I sure hope so. I'm always rooting for these young people in love. (laughs) Well, Anna comes in, a character we don't hear from a whole lot, but she's the sister of Zakaria, and she is important news which is going to be very helpful for Ishmael. Well, the news is 
not news to us, the viewers, because we already know mm. that Peninnah has prayed to the God of Israel and therefore converted in some sense to Judaism. She is among the Hebrews, and therefore, by saving her life, Ishmael was saving the life of a Hebrew maiden. And she declares that strongly and loudly and makes them reckon with the fact that they must honor and preserve Ishmael. Well, they don't get to enjoy this brotherhood very long before more important news is brought to the group. It turns out that the king is dead. Well, actually not, but they think the king is dead. The that news rumor, has arrived. Right. That rumor that the high priest was going to spread, it's been very successful. Everyone thinks the king is dead, and they have learned it themselves. And suddenly, they all realize that puts Fenena in grave danger. Yes, Fenena owes her position to her father, and there's a danger now of people hostile to Fenena taking power. And in fact, the very next second, because we don't stop for breath in this opera... <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't want to stretch it out too long. It's a long night. <laughs> Who comes in but, of course, Abigail and the high priest of all. Ready they to assert their authority. Are ready to say, hey, we're in charge now. And Abigail grabs the crown from Fenena that she was wearing as regent and declares that uh, actually she's in charge now and she's got the soldiers to make it happen. Right, but she doesn't get to enjoy that very long before a new person comes onto the scene. It's kind of like the ending of a Shakespeare comedy where like everybody's <laughs> just wrapping up all their things one after another. It's Nabucco with his soldiers. It turns out that he's not dead. When you set off a rumor that the king is dead, try to make sure he's in a place where he can't come right back. <laughs> Like, it's not just waiting in the wings. Yeah, like like <laughs> get him distracted, make sure he's out to lunch, otherwise engaged in a way that he's not going to just burst right onto the scene because burst he does and he is furious with everyone. Well, wouldn't you be if people were saying you were dead and, and fighting over your position? That's true. I'm not entirely sure I've got the capacity for rage in me that this guy does because well, he's, he's, king. he's angry a lot of the time. And uh, at this moment, he is angry at everyone. Everyone around him, other than his loyal soldiers, of course, has betrayed him. And so he sees that there are the Hebrews with their God that he has defeated. There are the priests of Baal with their God who seems to have pushed them into rebellion against him. Mm -hmm. And so he can, all he can see is that the gods, they're trouble. And so he says, I declare that I am no longer king. I am a god.
that was intense. That last sound we heard was a thunderclap. Before that, the response of the assembled group to his proclamation that these gods don't count, I'm not just a king, I'm a god, is surprise, horror. It's blasphemy as far as both sides are concerned. And Zakaria and his followers say, oh, foolish man, foolish man, because they know that this is, this is dangerous. The soldiers do say, viva Nubuko. And all of it leads up to that startling thunderclap, a mm. bolt of lightning from heaven that strikes Nabucco and drives him immediately from his senses. There's been a fair bit of talk about thunder and lightning and thunderbolts uh, so far. Yes. We've got the prophet thundering. We've got uh, Abigail talking about her fury as being like a thunderbolt. We've yes. got Nebuchadnezzar invoking the thunderbolt. <laughs> but who really throws the thunder? <laughs> yes, this thunder is this image of wrath, mm. but it's always just talked about when it comes to these human characters who wish to wield power, and it is demonstrated when it comes to the divine. And even in the libretto here, it describes Nabucco terrified, feels the crown being lifted from his head by supernatural forces, and he, he changes right there on stage into a madman. Yes, he loses all of his senses and immediately transforms from the most powerful figure to the most pathetic figure. Right. I'm surrounded by phantoms. They have flaming swords of fire, he proclaims. And Zakaria just notes, well, he's been punished, as we expected. And who is it, of course, who takes advantage of the situation but Abigail? Right. And her followers, she seizes the crown that has fallen and says that the glory of the people of Baal shall not be dimmed. And that is the end of part two. Part three opens with Abigail seated on the throne and all of the people singing about the power of Assyria. She's a queen as powerful as Baal on earth. There will be destruction everywhere if anyone challenges that power.
Following this proclamation of power, the High Priest of all comes in and he's got one thing on his agenda now that they're in charge, and that is the death of the children of Israel, starting with the one once called Abigail's sister, Anena. Right, starting with that most recent convert, the one who was close to the throne and might have had the throne that Abigail has now taken to be her own. And Nebuchadnezzar wanders on the scene, and he is in fact wandering. He is poorly clad, he looks distressed, he is out of his senses. And there's this echo here of King Lear, this scenario Mm -hmm. of the king driven mad and his one faithful daughter and his one faithless daughter who is even now taking advantage of him. Yes. Yes, and he makes his way in, and and he's not so out of his senses that he doesn't realize he's in the throne room, and he sees Abigail sitting on what he vaguely remembers should be his throne, and he says, woman, who are you? And she's very clear about the fact that I'm on the throne. This is where I belong. I've taken over. And there's an interesting duet that these two engage in where Abigail is asserting her authority, and Nabucco comes to negotiate with her a little bit. Yes, at first she is trying to get him to sign this document condemning the Hebrews. He doesn't want to sign. He doesn't want to sign, but she says, oh, if you don't sign, the Hebrews will be talking about how their God is very strong, and that makes him enraged, and he does sign, and then moments later realizes that he has condemned his own daughter to death. Along with all of them. Yeah, Abigail knows how to push his buttons. She knows how to manipulate him. She gets him to say, no, no, those, I've proclaimed something else. I, I won't let them win. But, but it's pitiful when he realizes that he's condemned his own daughter to death, and he shouts out, but she is my flesh and blood. Well, this gets Abigail where she lives. Because she is not his flesh and blood. And Nebuchadnezzar tries to secure the document that proves it, but... He's looking all over the place. He's like, I know it's here somewhere. I know it's here. It exists. It exists. And yet it does exist. And she produces it in her hand. And in front of him, she destroys it. Yes. It's, it's a blow to him. And she says, now you bow down low to me. You bow down to this slave. And he has no choice but to beg her, to beg that his daughter be saved in exchange for the kingdom. He offers to grant her full legitimacy of power in exchange for the life of his daughter. And she refuses that. And here we see a inversion of what we saw with the lovers in the beginning, right? where the choice is between love and the kingdom. And he chooses love. And here the choice is between the kingdom and hatred. And she chooses hatred. That's right. And all of this culminates in what I think is a very powerful comment by Abigail, where she says, well, the throne is worth far more than a lost father. At last, all the people will fall at the base of this slave's feet.
Abigail and her father, King Nebuchadnezzar, are arguing, and she is gloating that the throne is totally worth throwing her father overboard, which she has just done. And then the trumpets have sounded, and he, not entirely in his right mind, he is wondering, what does this signify? What what sound is that? She says that it is the death knell of the Hebrews that he has condemned. And this is a reflection of a a few stories which talk about the not Babylonian but rather Persian custom of the inviolability of a king's orders. In Persia, in the biblical and indeed the accounts of Herodotus, the kings of Persia, once they have made a declaration, are unable to go back on it. It is a manifestation of their regnal authority that they never change their mind on anything, no matter what happened in the intervening time. Oh, that that is perfectly set up for theatrical drama, isn't it? <laughs> it? It does create a lot of drama. You understand from some sort of uh, maintenance of power thing why you want to emphasize the power of the king that way. And yet it obviously causes a lot of trouble. And famously, we get stories like Daniel in the lion's den where the king mm-hmm. does not want to see Daniel killed or the story of Esther where right. even after the heroes have regained control of the palace, they still can't undo the order saying that people are going to come after the Jews. The only thing they can do is issue another order that the Jews can defend themselves. Right. And so in this situation, we have a problem where that sort of pathos is invoked, even though it's not exactly the same situation with the signet ring. And now the action moves outside the palace to the banks of the Euphrates, and we see the Hebrews They're in chains at forced labor. They're not yet executed, but they are definitively prisoners in bad situation. And they sing what is by far the most famous song from this opera. The one we spoke about right at the beginning and played that little melody that was in the introduction. This is the big number that everyone waits for when they go to see Nabucco. Va pensiero.
You're listening to Opera for Everyone, and that was Va Pensiero from Verdi's Nabucco. Grant, what a powerful song that is. It actually frequently gets an encore in productions of this. It does. Its power speaks to people. Yeah, and it's kind of just odd. Something that I didn't notice at first that you pointed out for me is that it's sung in unison, more or less. Yeah, it's not a complicated choral piece in that way. It has a lot of dynamic building that occurs, and there is a little bit of harmonization. But from what I understand, it's relatively simple, and it evokes Italian folk music more than anything else. It's not the grand classical. So it it really gets at people's hearts. It sounds like when you hear a crowd of people singing a national anthem, where they're all singing more or less the same notes, more or less the same words at the same time. You may have some people doing harmony or other things going on, and it ends up with that same quality that we think of as being the anthem, and it is anthemic. Well, it becomes an unofficial national anthem in the Italian states. We we talked in the first half about this nationalistic feeling that was brewing, wanting among some groups, to throw off the Austrian overlords. The song is, is simple in a way. This is, is also known as the Chorus of the Hebrew Slaves. It's fly thought on golden wings, and they're remembering their homeland, fly and settle on hills and cliffs where soft and mild, sweet aromas of our native land evoke fragrance and greet those banks of the Jordan and Zion's toppled towers. Oh, my country so lovely and lost, remember so dear. It's a longing of a people who cannot return or prevented from returning to their beloved homeland. And it's powerful. It's written to evoke Psalm 137, a song sung in exile, set from captivity in Babylon, these very people. Yes, these very people. And in that uh, song, the context is that the people have been asked to sing one of their Hebrew songs. And it's uh, one of these beautiful things where the composition is part of the story. And so in Psalm 137, the idea is they have been asked to perform. Mm. They are being held up as a curiosity. Sing one of your Hebrew songs. And They do, but they say, how can we sing one of our songs in a strange land? And it is heartbreaking and at times extraordinarily angry in its feeling of loss and objectification. It's one of the most poignant psalms and one of the most raw psalms. It's hard to work into a contemporary worship service because it is very much a human voice, a plaintive desperate human voice full of sadness and anger. And and the power of the unison singing. It's funny, Rossini, that great composer, heard this song and he referred to it as one grand aria, typically sung by a single voice, one grand aria sung by sopranos and contraltos and tenors and basses. They are a people singing as one, very much on purpose. I've pointed out a few times during our discussion, the differences between that play, source material, and our opera production. This piece, this was an addition by our librettist Solera. 
he felt that this was an important piece. And remember, this is the piece that Verdi, looking back on his composition, looking back on his career, this is the piece he explains as the motivating factor to get him in to this opera and then launch him forward on the rest of his incredibly productive career. One of the stagings that we watched of it is yeah. a very interesting one. I highly recommend it to anyone. It was, it was staged in Verona at an outdoor theater, and they really lean into the historical context of Austrian domination over Italy and the struggle for Italian freedom and unification. They have the Hebrews dressed as Italians, waving Italian flags. Yes. And the Assyrians waving Habsburg banners and wearing Austrian clothes. Oh, so no misunderstanding there what's going on. Yeah, they just lean right into it. <laughs> but what's interesting in that production is right here, it mm. shifts yes. from being in the realm of the literal, the Austrians and the Italians struggling, to a kind of strange, almost dreamlike place where the Austrians find themselves in an opera house watching a production. And so they, echoing this Psalm 137 context, they see these people performing. Yeah. And they've moved into ancient dress. Yes. They're, they're dressed as ancient people, but as costumed ancient people, not right. real ancient people, ancient people who are performing. Yes. Well, ultimately performing Nabucco for these Austrians. It was a fascinating interpretation of this opera. I thought it was very powerful. And I'm not just saying that because they had lots of horses involved. <laughs> the, the staging and the costuming and the different characters, it was amazing. So yeah, that was, a, that was an outdoor production in Verona that's available online to be, to be seen if you want to get a sample of that. And there are plenty of productions which, which stick with more, a more traditional interpretation the way Verdi, of course, would have had to put it, he couldn't be that blatant in his time. It had to be set in the ancient world. But people were very clear what was going on. Almost immediately, this song is is adopted as a song of resistance to Austrian rule. In fact, there's a funny story about this song and its power. La Scala, where this premiered, the stagehands of La Scala, they say, who, you know, they hear this stuff all the time. They just keep going on with their jobs. But when the chorus was doing Va Pensiera, they say the stagehands stopped. They stood still, sat down, and simply listened to this song. Not even the official audience. And it impressed these guys who hear it all. This is the one they needed to stop and listen to. So after this song, or perhaps it's encore, Zechariah <laughs> comes on stage and gives the people a prophecy of hope and encourages them in their despair. And this reminds me of the very beginning of the opera, when the people are lamenting their situation, and it is Zechariah who comes in to give them hope and encouragement. You can always count on that guy for a pep talk. Yeah, <laughs> depending on who you are. Oh, <laughs> 
Zechariah in Verdi's Nabucco, telling the Hebrew slaves, don't worry, things are going to turn around for you. And he's very strong in his imagery of the defeat of their captors. And he is so convincing that they all sing, that they recognize that he is a prophet. The Lord speaks through his lips. This is a place where Verdi takes it even further. As wonderful as this libretto was when it arrived in his hands, he says, oh no, here you have a duet between Ishmael and Fenena. We're going to shift that. Here is where we're going to let them stay in the background. And we're going to push this idea of the people who will break free from their captors. Yes. And that's the end of part three. Well, part four, entitled The Broken Idol or The Shattered Idol, begins with Nabucco apparently rousing himself after a dream. He's a little confused, as has been his way for some time now. Yes, ever since declaring himself to be the god. And he is just out of it and upset and gradually coming to the realization that he is still a prisoner. And his daughter is going to be put to death. And so in this moment of utmost despair, he decides that he is no longer going to hold on to this idea that he is God. Right. And seeing the way that he has been betrayed by Abigail and the priests of Baal, he turns to the other source of divine power. He prays to the God of Israel. Saying, true and omnipotent God, I will worship you from henceforth and always.
This is Opera for Everyone, and we are nearing the end of Nabucco by Giuseppe Verdi. The king himself, Nabucco, Nebuchadnezzar, at his lowest point, when he believes his daughter Fenena is about to be executed along with all of the other Hebrews, he falls down and prays to the Hebrew God, saying, you are the one and true God, and a miracle happens. His strength returns to him, and he has returned to his senses. And immediately he is thankful for the miracle Yes, and jumping into action. He heads for the door and the door is barred, but it is barred by the soldiers. Yeah. Who've been trying to keep him safe and keep him from the scorn of his people seeing him in his diminished state. Which is funny because it it suggests some sort of offstage manipulation of the soldiers by Abigail to say, hey, you're not keeping him in here because we're trying to lock him up. You're right. keeping him in here because... For his own safety. Yeah, we just don't want to make people have people make fun of him, right? Right. And by the way, this is this madness plot is based off of something that is attested in a, a few places in slightly different forms, probably actually of the king Nabonidus, a Babylonian king who was absent from his ruling duties for quite some time and was huh. rumored to have lost his senses. There are uh, stories that are found in the Hebrew Bible and the Dead Sea Scrolls that, that talk about this sort of thing. It's kind of unclear exactly historically what happened. Uh, it's always unclear when people are bad-mouthing former rulers. Right, right. But the long and the short of it is there is some basis for this idea of the king being kind of absent, sequestered, while a regency, in the historical case his son, right. was, was in power. But here, the whole thing doesn't last very long, and he is ready to go. And the soldiers guarding him, realizing he's back to his former strength, say, we're with you, king. Those traitors, they will fall like locusts to the ground. And they give him his sword. Yes. And the king's sword has come up a few times. It's the symbol of power and of rule. It has been a major feature in a number of the scenes where he is in control and him longing for his sword in his hand was a feature of his last discussion with Abigail where he found himself powerless without his sword. But here, his sword is returned to him. Yes. Now, meanwhile, back with Zachariah and all the Jews and Fenena, we hear a funeral march. This, of course, is leading up to the execution which has been demanded, which has been sealed. And Zakaria is trying to give comfort and strength to Fenena as she is about to face her own death. And he tells her to go and embrace the martyrdom that is going to be hers. And she, she prays at this point. She's looking forward to joining the Lord in heaven. And then what happens, of course, because... No waiting in this opera. His Nebuchadnezzar bursts in <laughs> with oh. his bloody sword again. This is the not the first time we've seen this king enter with a bloody sword. He's fought his way into this scene. Yes, he has. And he is now in charge. He says to his warriors, smash down the idol of Baal. Which is always on set at this point. A large representation of Baal. And... The soldiers don't get their opportunity to smash it. It is smashed of its own accord. It falls apart. Another divine miracle. And the people are shouting, Viva Nabucco! Long live Nabucco! 
And it's funny because the Babylonians haven't really been the good guys in this story. And yet <laughs> this Viva Nabucco is a triumphant, a, a good moment yes. where we're rooting for the same soldiers who were the bad guys in the beginning of this. And mm -hmm. they haven't really changed in their orientation. They are supporters of their king and their country. What they are against is the dominion of the clerical elite, the priests of Baal who have been empowered by Abigail's reign. And we're meant to think that Abigail's reign under the leadership of the priests with Abigail, it's gone much worse for the people than it had under Nebuchadnezzar. Yes, the priests of Baal are just generally vicious. And my understanding is that this reflects the anti-clericalism of Verdi and his librettist. Yeah, it's, it's well known that Verdi was not a big supporter of the clerical class, of the priests. There's speculation what was the cause of that anti-clericalism. Some suggest perhaps some bad experience or experiences in his childhood with priests. There's a story of him being kicked by a priest after he had mouthed off. But whatever the source, we understand him to be a faithful man, but anti-clerical, concerned about priests getting too much power and misusing it. Which makes a lot of sense in this context, where we have this deeply faithful play, and yet the bad guys are the priests who are looking after their own power. That's right. Well, he's in charge. He's got all the soldiers with him. The shattering of the idol is symbolic of the shattering of Baal's power and the priest's power. And Nabucco proclaims to the Hebrews, no, you are no longer captives. Please return once more to your native land and enjoy your homecoming there. And he said, we will raise a new temple to your God because he alone is great. He alone is mighty. And this historically reflects the later Persian period where Cyrus did have the exiles return to their homeland. And that is a whole big historical question in and of itself as to how or why that happened. But we do know that Cyrus very intentionally broke with a lot of Babylonian policies, that he saw himself as being a just ruler, where mm. the Babylonians had been tyrannical, and he was Persian. He was from the country we would now know, know as Iran, and, and he was not a part of the ruling class. And so the ruling class of places like Babylon was displaced such that the king had power and a great deal of power was, was devolved to local governance through the satraps, the Persian governors, right. as well as the people themselves. And this produced a great deal of loyalty to the Persian Empire and its system. Well, here we have the people, the chorus of the Babylonians supporting everything that Nabucco is doing. And they, in fact, support his embrace of the Hebrew God. They all fall to their knees at the end, big rousing choral piece where they are praising the power and the might of the Hebrew God.
Interestingly, this is where, in the most of the 19th century, where productions chose to end this entire opera with this choral affirmation of Nabucco and his vision. But there's a little bit left to the story. And that is wrapping up the conflict between daughter and father, bringing Abigail back on stage. She has taken poison, we have already been told by Nabucco, and here she, well, she says something surprising. She's dying, and she turns to her sister, Fenena, the one she had condemned to death, and says, please, mercy, grant me mercy. I'm to blame, I am now punished for it, and I want you to also be with the man you love. Wrapping up our love story here. <laughs> You two belong together. She turns to Nabucco to make sure she has his assent on that. After setting those things right, she says, Please, everyone, you say that God lifts up the afflicted. I am afflicted here. And they affirm her. They say God lifts up the afflicted. They forgive her in spite of everything in this moment of her repentance. And the last words of the opera go to Zechariah, and he turns to Nabucco, calling him servant of Jehovah. You shall be king of kings. And this is an echo of Isaiah 45, where Cyrus the Great is referred to as a servant of God who almost, almost knows God and is supported by God, even though his knowledge is incomplete. A fascinating end. Well, Grant, thank you so very much for bringing all these insights into this rich, amazing opera so significant in Verdi's early career. Thank you for being my guest co-host on Opera for Everyone. It was delightful. Thanks for having me.
Thanks for listening to another episode of Opera for Everyone. If you've enjoyed our show and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast. Make sure to smash that like button and rate, comment, and subscribe. And of course, join us any Sunday morning from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL, Jackson, Wyoming, to hear us on the radio. Opera can be challenging, but everyone loves a good story. And a story set to music is even better. Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable. Because we believe... Opera is for everyone! everyone.